in the whole Bible. This is uh, Psalm 119 is 176 verses long, uh, all of which I will be covering this morning in Hebrew and buckle in. Now, I, what, what, I, what I'd like to do is to use this portion, this, this, uh, this stanza. And it's interesting, this psalm is an acrostic, an acrostic poem, meaning that uh, it's divided into these different stanzas. And, and you'll even see this in the English Bible. The stanzas are identified by the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And if you do look at this psalm in the Hebrew, the, the first, um, e- each verse begins with that same Hebrew letter, so Aleph and then Beit and Gimel, all the, way through the, all the way through the psalm. So we're just looking at one stanza. I'm going to refer to it, but I'm just letting you hear it to get a feel for what the psalm as a whole is like. <clears throat> this entire psalm, 176 verses, is about what we would call Scripture. And the psalmist uses different terms. He'll say uh, law or statutes or promises or precepts. But really what it's talking about is the written Word of God, the Scriptures. One of the names that Christians are... We're glad that we can be identified with. Sometimes there's names that we're, that we're sorry that we're identified with. But one name we're glad to be identified with is William Wilberforce. And you may know that story that, uh, humanly speaking, although this was a work of God, but humanly speaking, he was used to eradicate the institution of slavery in Great Britain, and did so not just for humanitarian, you know, feel-good reasons, but did it for biblical reasons. William Wilberforce had this entire psalm committed to memory, could, uh, could say it to himself when he was walking to Parliament or walking to work. He would go over 176 verses of just the merits of the scriptures. Amazing. And this psalm really is underutilized in our day. It used to have a bigger role in Christian worship than it it does now. Maybe we can figure out some way to address that. But here's what we're doing this morning. If you weren't here last week, we started a new series last week and we're calling it The Habits of Love. And here's what we're after. After looking at Revelation, which the, the word that just keeps coming to mind when I've talked about it is Revelation was just technicolor, you know, big screen, tons coming at you, vivid, bigger than, cosmic, bigger than life. We're sort of going back to meat and potatoes, and we're going to look at basic Christian disciplines. And that's not a bad word. And I really want to be clear about that. I think every time that we talk about this, words like disciplines or habits, even the word duty the word ought, that we ought to do these things. Those are not bad words, but what we talked about last week starting this series is that what you love will always trump what you ought to do. It just will. And, and we can throw ought at ourselves all day long about spiritual stuff or physical stuff or you know diet or exercise or whatever. Ought, ought, ought. Nothing will get to you like what we love, Right? And so what we want to look at this morning is Scripture. You know, someone asked me this week, what are you preaching on? And I said, I'm preaching on the Bible, you know, which felt very focused. But we, but we want to look at the Bible, the Scriptures, as just this is supposed to be an absolute assumed part of the Christian life. But what would it look like? What could help us 
to embrace this, reading it, studying it, not just from ought, although we ought, but not just from ought, but because we love. Psalm 119, we're really going to be looking at, at big, big swaths of Psalm 119 or portions of it, but just for, a, for a, a feel and a sample of it, we're going to begin in verse 153. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust, because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, in the same way that this this psalmist keeps asking you to to teach him, teach me, give me understanding, open my eyes, give me life. We are, we're praying the same thing. Please teach us. Please open our eyes to see what is there. Please give us the understanding that we need, even in ways that we don't know that we need it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. About, let's see. 15 plus years ago, a friend of mine went to plant a new church, like we did here, um, in uh, California. And he was going to a very large urban area and really was seeking from the get-go that this would be a church plant that would be in a big city, not on the outskirts, not in the, not in the suburbs, but really in the, in the thick of things. And so on the front end, he had to raise a bunch of money. Um, We've already heard about support raising for ministry this morning, and he was having to do a lot of it. You know, the cost of living was even higher. And uh, he had grown up in Lakeland, Florida, and and most of his Christian network was in the South, but he's going to California. So he did most of his support raising in the South, in the Bible Belt. And he said this, this recurring experience he had when he was raising money was... He would give a presentation for a, you know, during a worship service or a Sunday school class or just be talking with a, a group. And, and someone would come up to him afterward and because he was going to a big city in California would say something along the lines of, well, I'll tell you what, you are going to a real mission field. And he said it happened so often that he developed kind of a standard response to that and, that, and it was... Well, we're all on a mission field, aren't we? And I tell you, what he was speaking to is so subtle. It is so subtle, it could fly past you and you not even see it. Because, and, and the thing is, when people said that, I don't even think they would realize 
what they were saying or would agree with what I'm about to say being, that was so grammatically tortured, scratch, it, scratch the last two or three sentences. Your Honor, erase that from the uh, whatever. Even though people might know better, what they were saying by implication was, the place where you're going needs Jesus more than this place. Boy, they really need mercy and forgiveness there, don't they? And of course, if, if you're even mildly attentive to what the Bible is saying on every page, our takeaway should be, wow, we sure need a lot of mercy and forgiveness, don't we? Something that, that comes up a lot in uh, sermons, that comes up in, uh, in our, our midweek studies, is this question, with whom did Jesus use his harshest words? And I mean, could be severe. It was not with the drunks. It was not with the, the, the swindlers, the tax collectors. It was not with... It was just not with the kind of biggie, flashy, billboard, sinful people. It was with the most ardent students of Scripture. Hands down. Was his critique, why are you so rigorous about studying the Scripture? Why, why have you gotten so wrapped around the axle about Scripture? That was never the critique. The, the critique was this, is that these are the men who would come to him, the, the, the devout students of the Scripture, and the posture was always something like this. Hey, you did such and such on the Sabbath, and you shouldn't have done that. There's other days to heal people. You shouldn't have healed that person on the Sabbath. Or your disciples did this on the Sabbath, and they shouldn't have done that on the Sabbath. Or, or the posture is, hey, who gave you the authority to say and do what you're saying and doing? Or, we, uh, teacher, we have a case over here, and we'd like to hear your thoughts about this, because we've got uh, the law of Moses says this, but then that happened, and there's different ways to understand this. What do you think about that? And it's always a trap. And what Jesus did not hear from the people who are most in the Scriptures is something along the lines of, boy, we sure need a lot of mercy, don't we? You know, the nations do not have the law and the prophets. We have the law and the prophets. And look at us, wow, we need a lot of forgiveness, don't we? He did not hear that. Thus the critique. Now, this psalm, 176 verses long about the Scriptures, and their parts that could almost, if, if we're not careful, they could sound like a Pharisee talking about his use of Scripture. Like there's a part, this is around verse 99 or 100, you don't have to turn there, you can if you want, where he says, Oh, how I love your law. It gives me more understanding than all my teachers. I know more than my elder. And, you know, when you hear that, it could sound like a goody two-shoes. You know, I love... The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. And I have done all my Bible verse memory work, and I know more than my Sunday school. It could just sound very, you know, just sort of taken with oneself. So is that really, was that the psalmist's takeaway? In other words, if he's not being goody-two-shoes, if he's not being disingenuous, but if he really does love, if the psalmist really does love the Scriptures the way the psalmist says, where did the love come from? And that's what I want to look at this morning because my hope is that this will, if God blesses it, that this will be something that can help us in our love of the Scriptures too. 
I want to look at what the psalmist learned and how the psalmist learned. What the psalmist learned, how the psalmist learned. First off, what did the psalmist learn? That where, where he's left saying, I just love the scriptures. First off, he learned how to learn. He learned how to learn. Now, now what, what do we mean by that? that? This phrase is not in the passage in the bulletin, but five different times in Psalm 119, the psalmist says, give me understanding. And that's very important. In other words, I am not coming with just an innate ability to get this and understand it and come to the right conclusions. I need you, like a giver giving a gift, to give me understanding. Ten different times, he says, teach me. Teach me, teach me, teach me. And in verse 23, this is very interesting, Old Testament. He says, graciously teach me your law. Now, why is that so interesting? Because if we're not careful, we can think, all right, Old Testament law is this hardcore thing, totally rule-driven, totally obedience-driven, merit-driven, and grace is this whole different thing that really you don't get to that till like the New Testament. And what is the psalmist saying? I need you to teach me your law, but I need you to graciously teach it to me. I can't learn the way I need to learn unless you give me learning. I can't understand unless, like a giver giving a gift, you give me understanding. Well, as God did that, what was going on in the life of the psalmist? How's, how's the psalmist changing? What else is he learning? He learns the great subject. Now, I do want you to look in the passage in the bulletin. Look in verse 156. Because again, we're asking the questions, do we have a goody two-shoes on our hands? Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. And then, very important, verse 159. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to what? My obedience? Give me life according to your steadfast love. That term, your steadfast love, is in Psalm 119 seven different times. Over and over and over, he's talking about your steadfast love. And that term came up last week when we talked about the habit of love of prayer, is that the psalmist gets to the end of this psalm, Psalm 66, and he's just struck by the steadfast love of God. Now, I mention this from time to time, but I, I love talking about this word. What's translated steadfast love in our English translation is one Hebrew word. And I, and I, I love it because of what it is, and I love it because it's so fun to say it. The word is chesed. It really sounds like a Hebrew word, but it's, it's, it's just, it is incredibly important in the Old Testament. It's the term for when God says, I love you, and you belong to me, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, then that means what he's affixing to you is his steadfast love, and when he sticks it onto you, it is tenacious. And he will bring into your life what love really looks like. Because we think it always looks like niceness, and it does not. But if he loves you that way, 
He will go after you with this love. You run from Him, it is kind of like runaway bunny. You know, you, you go way out there, He's there. You go way out there, He's there. Steadfast love. The psalmist is so struck by it, he keeps talking about it. Well, all right, he learned how to learn. He learned the great subject. This is not a book about my level of obedience. These scriptures are about the mercy and the steadfast love of God. So then what does he start asking? As he interacts with scripture, what does he start asking for? This comes up twice in the no, excuse me, three times in this little portion of, of the psalm. Look in verse 154. Give me life according to your promise. Verse 156. Give me life according to your rules. Verse 159. Give me life according to your steadfast love. What's he asking for? I don't want to just have a code to live by. I need life. There's, there's something deadening in me that I cannot fix by mere obedience. Yes, I want to obey. I love your law. It's your law. But give me life that only you can give. And in one place, he says this, teach me, again, English readers, we can fly past this and not think about it. He says, teach me the way of your statutes. Now think about that. Not just teach me the statutes. Teach me the way of your statutes. These rules, these laws, these promises, all comprise, there's a way that I want to get Teach me that way and give me life. Now think about this. The one person who could sing this psalm or say this psalm and not have any reason to be embarrassed was born, give or take, a thousand years later. Jesus of Nazareth. The one person who could literally say, I love your law I meditate on it day and night. I don't deviate from it. It is life to me. The one person who could say that one day said this to his followers. We may be accustomed to this, but, but the psalmist said, teach me the way. Give me life. Give me life. Give me, I think nine times. Give me life. Give me life. Give me life. This man says to his followers, not... If you'll listen to me, I'll teach you the way. If you'll listen to me, I'll teach you how to give life. But this man says, I am the way. I am the truth. Look at, look at verse uh, 160. The sum of your word is truth. And this man comes along and says, I am truth. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Do you need God to give you life? I am the life. And again, if, if you're new here, if you're visiting for the first or second time, I, 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 don't, I don't have the time to develop this like I want to this morning, but please keep coming because that is yet another head nod 
to something that is absolutely foundational to us as a church, and that is that all of Scripture is to point us where? To Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all of it. If the sum of God's Word is truth, He is the truth. After His resurrection, before He ascended into heaven, two different times in the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, you see, you see a picture of Jesus with His followers explaining to them how all the Scriptures, Moses and the law, the, law, the prophets, the Psalms, are all about Him. Now, whoever wrote Psalm 119, did the psalmist know that the way we can know it? No. But but that's the great advantage, that everything he craved, all the mercy that he already had seen from God, how God's the one who can give life, God's the one who, who can redeem, that finds its fulfillment in the one that the Scriptures are about. Jesus Christ. Not just a God who looks down at sinners and says, well, let's give them the best rule book we possibly can. Let me give them the best... I guess I was being Trinitarian there for a second. Um, Let me give them the best rule book I possibly can. And let's see how they do with it, and we'll see if we can patch something together at the end. But he breathes out his word, but then the word takes on flesh the one man who lives out the law and the prophets and then takes the curse for those who do not keep it. That's who God is. That's what the Scriptures are, breathed out by Him. Well, if, if, that's, if that's a picture of what the psalmist learned, you know, if he could say, I love your law, why? Because I'm a goody-two-shoes? No, because you're merciful and you're great and you give life and you can make me understand. You can make me understand who I am. How did he learn it? Again, we're talking about the habits of love. This is some of the the how-to. Well, one thing is this, and we talked about this last week with prayer, but it would bear itself out with Scripture too. We said last week, prayer makes great infrastructure. In other words, instead of doing the typical American thing where I have a day... Uh, I don't like big gaps of unaccounted for time, so I've got this structure to it, but what structures the day is what I must do. That rather than doing that, that what if we said the beginning of the infrastructure of the day will be prayer and work and other errands and leisure that will be built around that infrastructure. Rather than what I must do, prayer becomes the infrastructure. And we said, you know, monks don't have the monopoly on that. We can do that too. Listen to that infrastructure again. This is Psalm 119, verse 147. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Now, as we said last week, does that mean if you're going to grow as a Christian, you must get up in the dead of night to read and pray? No. But I will say this. Uh, Life doesn't tend to get less busy. Busyness is a balloon that will fill whatever container you let it fill. Just like work is. Whether that means six in the morning for you, whether that means noon, whether that means some little slice of your evening that just somehow 
has padding to learn the way the psalmist learned and really to learn the way Jesus did in his humanity is to have an infrastructure not only of prayer but of the word. Okay? So first off, just the structure of the day. Second thing is this, and he talks about this eight different times in the Psalms, is meditation. I meditate, meditation of your law. What is meditation? Now, I think if you've been exposed to the Bible, most all of you would know this, but just so we're all on the same page. When you hear meditation, you can think of someone in the lotus position doing something that's just very Eastern mystic and yoga-ish and, 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 and foreign to your experience. Every one of us meditates. You, you want to know what meditation looks like? And I'm not, being, I'm not being sarcastic. Here's what meditation looks like. Is when you're in the shower, I know this illustration could go badly, but, but if, when, when, you're in the, when you're in the shower, it's just kind of the beginning of your day, and just and you're kind of you know you feel fine you're tired but you're waking up and, and you you're sort of indifferent and uh, and at the beginning of your shower you remember something that irritated you and by the time you finish your shower you're ready to kill someone do you understand that's an act of meditation and the reason I, I'm not uh, I'm not being I mean the reason that's real is this. What happened was you reviewed something and I reviewed something in our thinking and we mulled on it to the point that it stopped just being mental and it touched what earlier Christians would have called, and as Jake uses this term a lot, the affections. That I thought about it so much. Puritans said the mind is the gateway to the heart. And whether we can really divide ourselves up that much, that's true. Thinking about it, mulling over it so much that it touched really the center of my life, what I really think and feel, what I want to do when I get out of the shower. That's meditation. And here's the beautiful thing that's being offered to us. Instead of me saying, I'm just going to read my chapter each day. And if it's between reading and not reading, yeah, read your chapter a day. But the end game is not that there's like some little man off to the side with a clipboard monitoring our progress going, you were a good boy today. You were a good girl today. Check. Yes, read for breadth. But it's to take even a a phrase or one sentence and to stew on it until it touches the affections I'd love for community groups to tease this out, maybe to say, what would, let's take one phrase and let's just look at what would it look like to really mull over this until it starts working its way into your feelings, your affections. Now then there's the next part, and this is so dominant in Psalm 119 that I, I, I can't cite all the verses. The psalmist learned, as he was exposed to Scripture, as he meditated on Scripture, he learned to obey. A friend of mine uses a term, I don't know if it's original to him, but he'll talk about churchians instead of Christians. What is a churchian? A churchian is someone who goes to church and goes to Christian activities 
and is largely untouched by it and largely lives like the surrounding culture. How do you produce a church in? I would say the best way to do it is have a man or woman expose them to lots of portions of the Bible over months and years and then for him or her to go do what he or she would do anyway. Because in that case, the Scriptures actually harden our heart. A way you learn the Scripture is when it says something, and this might come out of meditation where you're thinking about a phrase and then all of a sudden you realize, oh no. (laughs) You'll know you're meditating when you come to a conclusion and go, oh crud. Now I have to apologize. Now I have to say this. Now I have to stop saying this. Now I have to just put that away from my life. Now I have to have accountability in my life. We've, we've been doing this, this uh, midweek Bible study on the hard sayings of Jesus. And about three different times when we got to the end of the study, I just kind of had to look up and go, sorry. <laughs> it does mean what it says. You know, and we had teased it out and just kind of being confronted with, man, if that's true, it would mean this and this and this and this. Yeah. And we walk out. Obeying is how you learn. But, but there is, there's one other thing I want to... And like I said last week about prayer, guys, there's 8,000 applications I want to make. I can make three or four. But it's this. It's storing the Word of God in our hearts. Verse 11 of this psalm says that I've stored your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. It's been beautiful in our little Sunday school time before the children go to their classes. We've been learning Psalm 23 and these children have learned Psalm 23 in its entirety. Not singing it, just saying it. The blessing of hearing that back to the grown-ups. I to just kind of bring this to a close and even to think about how could that help me memorizing a portion of Scripture, just, just a, a phrase, a verse. And I want to end with this. When, uh, when I lived in Starkville, Mississippi, that was the first place I worked as a campus minister. It was actually my alma mater, too. And when I was in college, our campus, RUF, our campus ministry, we, on Friday afternoons we would go to a nursing home and visit the, the residents of this nursing home. And I just hated going. And it was one, it's this strange thing about service where on the front end you can just loathe going, and then on the, on the, at the end of it you're so glad you went. And it happened to me every Friday. I would go, ugh, I do not want to go to that nursing home, and I always walked out. Thankful I did. Well, when I was still in that mode of ugh, I'm walking up to the nursing home, and there's a man sitting in a, in a chair outside in the sun, an, an elderly man, and so the group kind of walked on past me inside, and I stopped to talk to this man. And uh, as I was trying to make conversation with him, it became evident pretty quickly that he had dementia. Because, you know, when, when, you're, when you're doing a get-to-know-you sort of chat, what kind of things are you asking about? Like, how long have you been here, and your family, and where are you from, and some of those things... He couldn't recall. And so even as a college student, I recognized that he had dementia. And as we started talking, he cited a verse from Philippians 3. And it's Philippians 3.14 about, I press on toward the goal of the prize 
of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's not an easy phrase. He, he may have had a different translation, but that was the verse. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he said it over and over to me. And what struck me in hindsight is that he had family members whose names he couldn't remember. And the text had gone into a deeper part of the foundation of his memory and identity than maybe his children's names. And as we wrap this up, could we think about something with a room full of largely younger people? Getting old is not for sissies. And we want to live a long time, but if you live a long time, then you're old. And when your body really starts to hurt, and there's just not a quick fix anymore, and you're no longer the person that the church wants to head up this or do that or, or head up this initiative, they, they, they don't, the church doesn't come to you anymore. And uh, the close friends you had that maybe were the real spiritual cheerleaders in your life, they're gone. They're gone. And you go long gaps without seeing your favorite people. You can really implode. And uh, the devil could really have a field day with that. And a, a sneaky heart can really have a field day with that. And a lot of dear, wonderful, godly people despair when, when they get older. And here's the thing. If they're in Christ, they're in Christ. But what if... Even that verse we used in the assurance of pardon, Philippians 3 also, that I don't have a righteousness of my own. I have a righteousness which is through faith in Christ. What if that got so deep into our being that it was like a marine posted at the door of our lives? And that even when I don't feel good, or maybe I have a terminal illness, and those precious Christian friends that I learned so much from, they're gone now. But there's this Marine posted there. And when despair wants to come and say, you're not doing much for God, there's a guard there saying, the only righteousness I have is through faith in Christ. This is the window of time where we can meditate and read and store, and feed, so that we might finish well. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, put your word into our hearts, and if we have been struggling, felt so intimidated by it, would you make those, uh, just make the intimidation diminish. Father, if the Bible has largely, if it hasn't been neglected, it's been utterly neglected, would you, would you put it in our hearts to reach for it? Would you keep us from feeling overwhelmed? Would you show us the phrase, the verse where we can begin and meditate and feed and store it in our hearts that we might know Christ and feed on Him? and walk in your ways. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.